I, I, I still absolutely think that. Um, you know, I think that microservices, when done well, are, are a great answer to so many different problems. I think it's the when done well is a very big qualifier. You're listening to the Achieving DevOps podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Well, welcome everybody. Um, this is a chance to to get back in touch with someone I interviewed uh, many moons ago when I was writing my book, Achieving DevOps, Michael Stonkey. Um, and at the time he was working at Puppet, now he's working for Circle CI. Michael, why don't you kind of introduce yourself and talk to me a little bit about your background? Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, you know, as Dave said, I was I was uh, at Puppet for a long time. I, I moved on to Circle CI. Prior to that, I worked in big enterprise, and so, um, you know, I, I have experience kind of at, at, with companies that are at very different stages. Uh, I went from a company of 110,000 people down to a company of 35 people, um, and now I'm a, you know a company of a couple hundred, and we're growing uh, very quickly. Uh, so you know, it's just different experiences with different people, and and trying to achieve goals in, in different ways. But it's it's always good to have different perspective too. And I think that's interesting because um, at Puppet you were working for a, kind of a more well-established unicorn. But Circle CI is different. Um, their software as a service, and you said that they really valued your experience in scaling. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think one of the reasons that you know they were they were knocking on my door was I had been through this at Puppet. You know, we started out as a, a, per- a company of about 35 people when I got there. We were more than 500 when I left. Um, you know, I, we'd seen significant growth. I remember the first quarter when we we sold more than a million dollars in a quarter. Um, you know, things like that. And then you know, by the end, it was. You know, you know, you're having, if you're not having million dollar weeks, you're having bad weeks, you know, at times uh, and things like that. And so it was very different to see the change in revenue, to see, um, you know, to see just what the engineering team could accomplish when, when you're, you know, when the company's 35 people, engineering is like 10, right? And you can see what, what does engineering do? Well, one problem derails the entire department. And then later, you know, as you get into different things, you know, we had, we had an engineering department of 200 plus and you get a major security issue and it's like, yep. You know, we're going to take 10 or 12 people and go work on it, but the other 190 plus people are still doing their day-to-day jobs and getting the right things out the door. And, you know, it's things like that that I think are, are, they don't sound that important, but somebody that's been through that and figured out how to do that, it's a skill set that you can reapply. It's it's nice to have battalions of developers and well-trained engineers to throw at things. Um, You know, it gives you a a, a lot of... um, you have a lot more resiliency, I think. It, it does. I mean, early on, th- the difference is early on, all the developers are kind of, they're going the same page because they're all working on the same project or, the, or you know, a, a, such a tight-knit group of things and a tight-knit group of developers that they are much more fungible and can back each other up. When you get to a larger department, you know, it's, oh, I need an engineer that can work on this. And it's like, well, I have 200 plus engineers, but there's only about seven people that actually can work in this technology space. Which still, you know, has its its pros and cons, but you just have to work differently around it from an engineering organization perspective. So, tell me a little bit then about um, about your time at Puppet. What, what did you kind of learn from from working there? You were there for nine years, right? Yeah, it was about eight, it was about eight years. What I really learned was, I mean, I learned a lot about growing a company. I learned a lot about running a company. 
Um, you know, they were so transparent for so long that, you know, I got to experience what does it mean? Like, what does a marketing department actually do for a company? Or what is, you know, how do you bring in sales dollars? And what does that look like? And what's the difference between booking and revenue? And, you know, why is, what's a customer acquisition cost? And why is it, why are renewals so important? And why are new logos so important? And, you know, it, what I loved about it was I got to get a great experience for the entire business. So it wasn't just how does code work? And of course, I learned a ton of things about software engineering and putting teams together and continuous integration and continuous development and you know just all of these practices because we were doing them and learning them and and making them go better and you know we spent a lot of time building a continuous integration system for puppet because it ran on so many different operating systems and network switches and other devices and we wanted to automate that as as much as we could and you know in the end that was where we had a team of engineers on and you know at its peak i think we had more than 30 engineers working on just the you know the engineering systems inside of puppet um so that we could test and deliver faster and that was really where i had spent most of my time in terms of uh the technology focus and even the people focus and so you know naturally that was that was a, that was a uh a big plus, I guess, in the plus column for Circle CI when they came, you know, was, oh, you spent a lot of time in this space and you understand it quite well. So, um, you know, I got to learn that. Some of the other things I got to learn, you know, how do you run security for an open source, uh, you know, a, a major open source project? How do you respond to, um, you know, threats from attackers or a researcher that says, hey, if you run Puppet in this way, you can get root on every box that's ever run Puppet, you know, things like that. Uh, those were huge learning experiences and, and we got through them all and it was it was really fun. I love, we're going to circle back to kind of the, the business language there because that came up in our interview. I, I think that's interesting. And also about testing. Um, where do you see yourself though, like in five years? I don't know that I have a great answer for that. And it's, it's, it's such a, I don't know if I have one either. Yeah. It's, it's such a, a weird, question, it? well, it's such a weird Hopefully place alive. in my career at this point. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm basically 20 years into my career and, you know, for most of my career, I definitely had the, here's the next step. Here's where I want to be. And right now, you know, I'm a vice president running a platform organization for a software as a service company that's rapidly growing. That's, you know, doing really cool things and I'm pretty content, which, uh, you know, that's, that's a great thing to be. And, you know, I'm still, I've only been at Circle CI for, you know, six this month. And so it's not like it's, it's not a, it's not been a huge, you know, time invested here yet. Um, it will be, and it's really fun. And so I think the thing is right now, I'm just trying to learn as much as I can in the role that I'm in. And so five years from now, I hope I've learned a lot and I probably will have a very different answer to this question, but I don't know what that answer looks like. Yeah, I think, I think my answer would be much the same. I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up yet. You know, I'm 46 years old. Um, in five years, I want to know more than I know today. I know that much. So I, I love that answer about trying to keep. Um, what have you kind of learned along the way? Any life lessons you'd like to share with me? Uh, I think the, let's see, I do have a couple of life lessons that I often <laughs> pull out when I get asked this question. I think one of them is um, what I found is that my personal relationships, the, the more I invest in those, the better I am at work. And I'll get into this, you know, when you have conflict or you have arguments or you learn how to talk to or communicate with people, um, those things translate back into the office. And sometimes you can learn things from the office and take them back to your home relationships. And early on in my career, I definitely did not think that. I thought there were two different parts of my life. And uh, later on, ironically, I was probably spending, doing a better job balancing work and life, but blending them more in terms of the skill set of relationships and how to work with different people. Um, and so I think that was one of the things I really learned. And part of that was I also, I have, I have a son who has autism and I got to learn a lot about the way he sees the world. And 
you know, just the, the different ways you communicate and the different ways you say things and idioms and slang and, and things like that and how they don't always translate into, whether it's not necessarily a business context, but it could be, I have an employee who is on a different continent or has a different culture or a different background or doesn't have English as a first language. And those things that pop up, you know, when I'm working with my son suddenly return to me and, and they provide huge value. And so I think one of the things that, that I've learned over the years is you know, the ability to communicate is more important than literally any other skill. And you can learn how to improve communication from things at work, from things at home, from a therapist, you know, from a mental health professional, from a workshop, from somebody on the street. You, you can improve it in so many different ways. And like, that's what I would say. If you're, if you're trying to uh, be better in your career overall, work on communications. I, I just don't think anybody's good that. enough at it. That's such great advice. Um, it's funny, my wife and I were coming up on our 25th anniversary in just two months. And yet it's only been in the last couple of years, I've really learned how to apologize in a way that sticks. You know, like when I did that, I was, I'm sorry, that was inappropriate or you know, do it differently next time. And then following through on it, a lot of people still, it seems like that's, uh, that's a very valuable skill set at work and at home. Like you said, it spills over the, the ability to be able to recognize your own flaws and fix them, you know, in, in a very open and clear way is, is a huge life skill. Yeah. And it's not to say that I'm, I'm great at it at all times either, but it's, right. it's, you know, you have to have self-awareness to start. So, And I'm, I'm interested about what, what's your son's name? Duncan. Duncan. Um, so with, with autism, it's quite a, a spectrum. Um, where's he at on the spectrum? And, and I imagine it's been, it's been a challenge and, and a way to grow. It, it has been, um, you know, I don't know what the official measurements are for somebody being on the spectrum. You you hear about people that say my 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 child has Asperger's or is high functioning, and I wouldn't describe Duncan as that. I would say that he has something that's more moderate to severe. Um, you know, he's six years old and and he doesn't talk very well. He will he can make kind of demands or um, actions or commands, but he doesn't really have conversations. So you know, if he's hungry, he'll say, "I want popcorn." But if you say, "How was your day at school today?" you know, that you're not going to get a response. So, um, and so for that, that's been, that's been a very challenging thing, but it's also been, it just caused me to rethink all so many parts of my life. And, you know, you don't realize how often when you're communicating with somebody, you're asking a question that is not a question. You know, would you do this for me? No, you're actually saying, go do this for me. And, um, but he hears, would you do this for me as a question, which means that he has the option to say no. And, you know, well, don't you want to sit at the table while you eat that? That's a question. It's not a, that's not a command. And um, it's just in the English language and in our, our society, you don't think about things like that very much. And so I've had to, I've had to really watch my language um, and not like from a, you know, cursing perspective, but from a, how do I phrase this to get the desired outcome? And I find that choosing your words carefully, you know, choosing my words carefully with Duncan is one thing, but choosing my words carefully with an employee or with a team that's trying to get something done is just as important. And I don't think I, I spent that kind of mental energy on it until I was opened to the experience with Duncan. I find that really fascinating. Um, I have a friend whose who's son is autistic and, you know, at first he was crushed um, when, when, when he found out about it, but now it, it's been a real success story. Um, and I think there's a lot of people actually in our field that have autism to some degree or, or another. Um, so it, it's, it is funny that you relate that to working with people from different cultures because, and they've done studies on this, people from Japan or from China or from Africa or India, they all react very differently when it comes to communication, organizational hierarchy, 
and solving problems. And that's obviously what you found as well. Yeah. I mean, you find just society has a huge influence in the way that you respond to something. You know, certain cultures speaking up is is not it's not it's just not a normal thing to do. It's not a comfortable thing to do. Um, or, you know, having a conversation, if a superior makes a suggestion, you just go with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, that's that's not the culture that I'm usually trying to build. But you, you also have to to work with what's comfortable for the humans on the other end of that conversation. And sometimes it's instead of making a suggestion and say, well, what do you think about or tell me about what could go wrong when we do X, Y or Z? And you just have to kind of phrase it in ways that it's more of a collaboration, if, if that's truly what you're going for. I think the other big lesson is don't provide the illusion of choice if there actually isn't one. Going back to, to Duncan again with working with him, if, if you're right. asking, would you do this right? Um, is there a book that you found helpful? Uh, in that Some space... Some people mention Fierce Conversations. I, I think that's kind I, of... I mean, I've, I've read Fierce Conversations. Um, I I didn't find I didn't find it that helpful. I'll, I'll say that. You know, I, I, I've read a lot of different management books and feedback books and... and um, my favorite one of late has been uh, An Elegant Puzzle from Will Larson. Um, and it's more about running an engineering organization, but it's kind of systematic thinking about engineering, which I, I really enjoyed. Um, I didn't agree with everything in the book, but I thought, man, what a great job laying this out. Um, and it does talk about how to interact with different types of people, but it also talks about how you, you know, what team sizes should you make and why would you make them that size? And what goes wrong with this size? You know, and, and it was just, it was just a really well done book. Um, from the, you know, communication standpoint, gosh, I've read so many books on, you know, children with autism and I've read, mm-hmm. I've, I've read just a lot on, on communication, um, you know, as a couple with my, with my spouse or as other, you know, just working with other humans. And, and, and I find that most of the books are helpful, but, you know, looking back on it, it's like, which one was the most impactful? It's really hard to say at this point. I take a little bit from each of them. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I would actually say that you might get more work done with uh, the right executive coach, the right business coach, the right therapist, um, you know, and I guess I'll also be like super clear on this. I do not shy away from talking about mental health. Um, like it's a very big deal. And I think people are I don't think it's talked about enough overall. And so, you know, like I have a therapist like and, and I'm happy to talk about that. So um, it's just something that helps me. This is not like something uh, it's, it's not the American ideal. Um, we, we, it comes from Clint Eastwood, stiff upper lip, um, the, the, the cowboy that rarely says, says a word. That's the male model. It has been for the last hundred years in America. Um, and yet we have things like Anthony Bourdain, who committed suicide a year ago. Very sensitive man, but it, to everyone around him, life was going great. No one saw it coming. You know, it, it's, it's shocking. Um, so I, I like the fact that you know, it, it's good to talk about it's something I've learned about in my life, too, is that not admitting you have weaknesses or that you're having a bad day, it doesn't make you stronger. Right, you right. You need a network of friends and, and support around us, including a therapist, including executive coach w- when necessary, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I think that's something else that I learned kind of working with Duncan was, you know, everybody starts a conversation with how are you and you're supposed to say fine or, you know, oh, I'm right. really tired. Or, you know, it's some canned answer that really means nothing. And like small talk it's just this, this script you play through. It doesn't accomplish anything. And, you know, sometimes it makes people feel comfortable because, like, well, I've had interaction with them, but how meaningful is that interaction? And it's just something that I think about a lot, um, and, and Duncan does as well, because he, he knows that when certain people say certain things, you're supposed to reply certain ways, but I don't think it means anything to him. So I, I remember um, in the Bahamas one time, uh, we were there on vacation, and I was talking with someone, um, at a restaurant, and he he said, Dave, you you have. He, I remember he turned to me and said, you have to 
embrace your loss. And it just it hit me like a hammer right between right between the eyes a little bit. Um, we can't run away from or try to gloss over these things. We have to in order to heal from them, we have to acknowledge, um, you know, uh, some of the bad things in life as well as the good things. And that's how we can move towards gratitude. And, and happy makes a lot of sense a little heavyweight here but i i love yeah. i love talking about this is the funny thing about when you and i talk like when i first talked to you i expected well we're, we're going to hear about puppet we're going to hear about configuration management we're going to hear about infrastructure as code but instead you talked about hiring for compatibility um you, you, you talked about attracting the right people and keeping them and that was really fascinating to me um, yeah, I, I mean, I love the technology in the space that, you know, configuration is code or infrastructure is code or, you know, at this point, it's it's a lot more around CI and, and delivery and automatic delivery of, of software. And, you know, I love these technologies, but like without the people and the right people doing things and the right process behind it, kind of the, the technology comes up empty. Um, you know, at, at one point in my career, I got a lot of joy from playing with technology, you know, in my basement late at night. And at this point, I get... I still get some joy out of that. Don't get me wrong. I still do it from time to time, but I, I think I get way more joy out of, out of building a team and, and watching them accomplish things that I could never do on my own. And, and that's just something that I really look at. And, and I learned a lot about during my time, you know, growing, helping to grow the puppet as a company was how do you hire the right people? And how do you figure out if, if they're going to work with you? And, you know, the person that you want to go have beer with might not be the best employee to go hire at the time. Uh, you have to figure out compatibilities and the way you work together. Um, you know, it, eventually we kind of distilled it down to cultures, the way you work and how you work together, which is way more important than, uh, you know, what I be friends with this person. Um, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be friends with everybody you work with. You know, hopefully you're cordial, hopefully you're respectful. Uh, but you know, sometimes people can be very different and be very effective together. Um, and, you know, making sure you can find those people and, and optimize for that makes a better team. Yeah, it's nice when, when you look around the room and not everyone looks like you and acts like you and reacts like you. And yet you're solving problems with the same mission in mind. That's when you know the team is really clicking. Is that your experience as well? Or It, it is, uh, you, you know, it, it's it, to me, it's it's what, what do people value in terms of work? And, you know, one of the things I really like to figure out is work ethic and you know how do you interview and figure out somebody's work ethic well it's not that easy and i don't always get it right but i love to know that people want to work really hard when they're working and it's okay if you don't want to put in 12 hour days or 16 hour days or whatever that's not what i'm trying to say when i say work ethic it's that you know when you're there and you're putting effort in it's your best efforts and and like your best efforts need to be good and 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 like you should hold yourself to that standard like you shouldn't need a, a manager to hold you to that to that standard and i think that's that's one of the things I really look for. And it turns out, you know, anybody can have that great work ethic. And I've, I've hired a lot of people that were very junior with very little, you know, practical technology skills of any kind. But if they were motivated, you know, by themselves to be better and to learn more and to do better, you know, they just rose through the ranks very quickly. And, and it was, you know, some of, I mean, some of my favorite moments of my career are, are watching these people that I hired entry level, you know, right out of school, right out of code school, wh whatever it was. And just how much success they're having at this point. And, you know, whether it's at a company that, you know, I hired them into or, or somewhere else, it, it really doesn't matter. It's just awesome to watch them grow and and do good things because, you know, they're, they were great team members. They learned a ton and they were able to apply it over and over again. It's, it's funny you're, you're talking about, I, th I think every manager will nod their head vigorously when you talk about finding a self-starter. 
but it is hard to interview for this. So do you have any questions or approaches you like to use to kind of find those those people that are not going to need to have someone cracking the whip to to give their best? Um, I, I generally, you know, I, I, I ask a lot of questions that are open-ended and more conversational because I'd rather have more of a conversation with a person than a, I have a question, I expect this response is a right answer or close to a correct answer. Um, but I will say that I also have to know what everybody else is interviewing for um, because usually it's a group effort for interviewing somebody. And I want to make sure that somebody is covering, you know, a technical vetting that I'm probably not going to get into. Um, somebody is covering, you know, a pairing thing, you know, can they work directly one-on-one -on -one with a team member? I'm more about what, what motivates you and what's your style and, and what do you enjoy about a job? And the, the things that I usually ask, a lot of times I, I will ask something, you know, what do you want out of this job that you're not getting currently? If you're entry level, that question usually gets skipped. It's kind of what do you, what do you look for in a workplace? And, you know, those are kind of just opening, like, let's just get talking. There's not a lot of great things you're going to glean from that question. Um, I, I like to ask what's difficult, what's difficult about distributed computing. And when you ask that question, you can get answers just so far around the world on on what it possibly could be. You know, somebody could start going through the fallacy of distributed computing. They could say, you know, the network's not reliable. Cache invalidation is a hard problem. Shared state, you know, just a whole bunch of things they could go over. Or they can start saying, well, this one time I was trying to write a client server application and this thing blew up and I couldn't figure out. It took eight hours to troubleshoot. And, you know, very quickly you can kind of get, okay, how, does this person think at a macro level or at a micro level? Do they think in specifics? Do they think in generalities? Um, and you can start asking questions and kind of poking around. You know, if they're really talking at a high level, can you get them to drill into something very detailed? If they're really talking very detailed, can you get them to talk about a general case, um, you know, very quickly? And how fast can they jump back and forth between those those types of levels? And, um, you know, there have been times when that's almost the only question I, I start with that was written down on my page was, what's difficult about distributed computing? And from there, I might have a 30-minute conversation. Um, but there are other times, you know, where I ask, I ask a lot about culture and I usually ask, you know, at, at, the, at the place you're at, how does the culture where you work like empower or disempower you? Like, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? But I do use the phrase empower or disempower because I think it's, um, I think it gets you to think about it a little bit differently than like or not like. So, um, yeah. 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 And there's no question that, that our, our cultures, cultures trumps everything. Um, we have good people in every organization, effective people. It's usually the rules and structure that lets us down. Right, right. I mean, when I came from enterprise, I felt like, you know, the average team size was probably 12 or 13, but you always knew it was one or two people on every team that got anything done. And so there were another, you know, seven to 10 to people that, I mean, I assume they got some work done. I don't know what it was. It wasn't the work that I ever needed done. And but they were still there and still employed. So, you know, obviously it was important and I just couldn't see it all, but I felt like, you know, the organization probably could have reduced by more than 50% and still had about the same output that would have been visible from my perspective. And I think, you know, that was very frustrating. You know, it's like, why, why is this person who I've never seen do any work on another team, you know, four salary grades higher than me. Um, and, and, you know, those types of things are very demotivating over time. And, you know, as I've grown and changed in my career, I think I have more respect for context and point of view and being able to understand that not all work is visible to all people. And, you know, there's just so many different inputs and variables into there. But as a younger employee earlier, you know, that was just kind of what the heck's going on here? That doesn't make sense. Um, you know, why? <laughs> Yo, pay me. <laughs> um, it was, you know, conversations like that. And having been on the other end of those conversations now, you know, where I've had junior level or, or mid-level engineers saying, hey, why am I not... Um, 
you know, a principal level engineer, when I'm working with that principal engineer, I know more than they do about this topic. And I'm like, you're right about that topic. You are far superior, but I have these 17 other topics that also get need to be known very well at all times. And I don't, you know, we're not having the same conversation about your knowledge on all of those. And so, you know, it's kind of come full circle where I can see both sides of it, but I think, you know, and that's a cultural thing. It's, I, do you talk about those things? Do you not? And, and, do you talk about the value that somebody else brings? Do you not talk about that? Do you talk about the value that team brings? Um, and that can be interesting to navigate, but uh, you know, it's those, it's those cultural structures that can either make you feel like, man, this is a slog and this job is, is really difficult. And you can take almost the exact same workload and put it in a different company with a different culture and people will just smile and cheer to, to do that. Um, you know, yeah. every, every place has, has work that I would consider not fun, but man, there are people that enjoy doing it in the right companies. It's, it's almost a, a litmus test when things go wrong and you walk in the room and they're doing a postmortem. Um, first off, is there only one group in the, in the room? Maybe the developers are just operation. And secondly, you know, are they sitting on opposite sides of the table? Are they laughing and joking and trying to work collaboratively towards a, a, instead of pointing fingers? That's like the test for the health of an organization. I th How do we react when things? Yeah, uh, I think it's us it, versus them. Like we're great. Everybody else sucks. That's kind of the dialogue I hate. Yeah. And, and the thing is, the best meaning people can do it accidentally and, and they don't always realize it. And, um, you know, I've definitely had to work on that with with different managers and different people in my career. And I, I mean, people have worked on it with me. It's not like I'm immune to those types of things either, where you think you're very inclusive and you think you're doing all the right things. And then you're just like, but if that other team would just do this right, you know, we're doing it awesome. Why can't they just get on board? And you realize that you just created an us versus them moment. And, um, you know, we're not immune to that at any level. I'll say that. <laughs> so. do, do you like the culture there at Circle CI? I mean, do you find it empowers you? What, what are some positive, um, things that you see with this company that's kind of on the growth? What I really like about it is, um, I mean, yes, I, for starting, I do like the culture a lot. What I really like about it is, uh, it's, so the engineering organization is very distributed. Um, you know, the headquarters for Circle CI is in San Francisco, but in my entire engineering org, I think I have two people that are based in San Francisco. Um, and so, you know, we're just, we're all over the world. And so it's a very distributed culture, uh, you know, chat program Slack has used very heavily, but just the the async communication, the connecting when you need to connect, but also like disconnecting when you need to disconnect, that all works fairly well. There's a sense of urgency here that I really like, you know, how fast can we move? How fast can we get things out? How much can we learn? Um, and I think that's that starts from the top. You know, it's a very data-driven culture. Do we have data on this? Um, you know, our... Our CEO will often quote, you know, well, if we have data, let's use that to make decisions. If we're only going to use opinions, let's use mine. So, um, you know, and, and I, he's kind of joking, but he's kind of not. And, right. um, you know, it works that way. Uh, there's a lot of things that are measured. And so we, we can see movement. And I think that that's that's a very different culture than than where I came from last, you know, where I think we wanted measurements on a whole bunch of things. But the the return time to feedback was so long that you couldn't make necessarily great decisions based on minor shifts in, in a number or something like that, because you know, as you ship software, you have to wait for a company to adopt it, maybe put it through a lab and then roll it out into production and then start to use a new feature. And then you get feedback on that new feature. That could be a year after you wrote it. And that might be a short feedback cycle. Whereas like on Circle CI, if I put it, you know, if we put it something new in the UI, the next day we're going to have 50,000 users that have touched it. And like, Cool. Now I've got some data. Did they like it? Did they not like it? Did they click on it? Did they stay longer? Did they do other, you know, did they explore the thing they wanted to explore? Like 
it's just such a different pace of movement. And, and to me that, that spreads throughout the entire culture because it's like, well, let's go learn stuff and let's learn it quickly. And of course, you know, there are, there are engineering delays and there are problems, but it's not like, I don't, it's just very different to me to be able to get feedback so quickly and say, wow, when we do this, you know, we get, we get more people that, that get green builds faster. Sweet. That's what we want, you know? Uh, and so you can measure that and optimize. for it. So many times I would, I would spend, my team and I, we, we'd spend months developing a feature that some business analyst had come up with and had gold-plated. And then it was like, we just dropped it in the ocean. We never heard about it again. We had no idea on usage. There was no thinking about, you know, hypothesis-driven development. How do you, how do you there gather that information so quickly at CircleCI? I, I mean, the, the platform is fairly instrumented, and it's not, you know, it's not all Google Analytics or whatever. It's just, you know, you can look at a log and be like, okay, this is hitting, this type of build is happening this number of times, or this customer, or this many customers have used more than this number of credits on the system this week, or, you know, whatever. It's just the system's there and you can just tap into it and ask the questions and usually get the answer. There are some cases where you have to build some instrumentation or whatever, but um, it's so uh, it's, it's, it's just so much richer than, than shipping software and hoping somebody adopts it and upgrades it and rolls it out. And maybe they turn on analytics gathering so you can get some feedback or whatever. Um, And, you know, it's not to say that anything that, somebody who's delivering software on premises doing is wrong it's just, it's just a different style of software usage and so you have a different philosophy for feedback so you use uh, use you don't use just google analytics um do you guys use feature flags do you like use oh, yeah. like release rings and things like that uh, you can use that to do like your a b or blue green type deployments right yeah we, we definitely use feature flags heavily um you know we have and a lot of times you know we'll roll out a, b- a bunch of features for us first you know it's like the circle ci org right. on circle ci has has different things in it than what everybody else is seeing because we're trying out a new feature. We're giving feedback to the, you know, the team that developed the thing that we're looking at. And, um, but luckily we use circle CI to deploy and update circle CI. So, you know, there's always developers flowing through it. And so they're always be able to get feedback, which is, it's pretty fun. And then, you know, we may turn it on for a small number of orgs and then roll it through to, you know, hundred percent of the customer base over time, or, you know, there, there's just a lot of variables for how you can control that, which is, uh, you know, it's exactly what you want. You know, it's all the things you you hear about at conferences about being able to blue green deploy or select customers or five percent of customers or, you know, whatever. Like we have most of that power, which is it's 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 pretty cool. I mean, me coming from a an on-premises software delivery model for so long, it's 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 pretty amazing. So hmm, that's neat. Um, so let's talk then. You, you mentioned about distributed computing, and it, it seems like a few people I interviewed are, are talking about oh, you know there's kind of a backlash against microservice, you know, and, and, um, and, oh, we're, we're saying that this is like a magic bullet for everything. But you said, you said in our interview at large scale, like enterprise is almost a requirement. And I, I chime in on that side too. I, I would agree with that. And, but then you say, listen, it's much more challenging than people think. Gee, oh yeah. I, I think, wanna, I, yeah, I, I, I still absolutely think that, um, you know, I think that microservices when done well are our great answer to so many different problems. I think it's the wind done well is a very big qualifier. And what you see time and time again is people build a monolith. That's usually how they get product market fit. And whether, you know, whether it's product market fit for a company or from a team doing an internal work group application or whatever, and it grows, as you start to split things apart, what you end up doing is you split off, um, a lot of times you split off the simpler things first into the microservices. And those aren't the things that give you all the value being split. And so you might have, you know, let's say you had a, a Rails monolith at one point, and now you have a Rails monolith plus a little Go library on the side. 
but the Go library still calls into the Rails monolith for all the data model. Well, what do you have now? You don't have microservices. You have two things that have to be online to keep your service online, where you used to only have to have one thing being online to keep your service online. And I just see this pattern over and over again where people get, you know, that little Go sidecar that I was just talking about, they have 15 or 20 of them, but they still need that monolith online for any of those other services to function. And yes, I understand that any microservice purity is going to, you know, purist is going to say that's not doing microservices correctly. And 100% correct, it is not. But I think it's how most of the real world has been moving to microservices. Their, their extraction techniques are lossy and they don't get you to a clear separation of duties. And if you're doing that, what you've done is just add a whole bunch of complexity and, and not gotten most of the benefit you want out of it. It might be that people like writing Go instead of Ruby, and so they can move really fast on that Go part. But if you you know if all your data is still in the in the model of whatever the Rails app was, uh, you know you're still constrained by that. You're still shackled to this dead yak. Uh, right. You have, you have a beautiful lean you know quarter horse here, but we're, we're shackled to this you know this this massive system that is. And we can only move as fast as that monolith. Right, right. And I think I've seen this, you know, not not just from one company, uh, you know, and, and, and going to, you know, different DevOps conferences or, or developer conferences. It's a story you hear again and again and again. You know, the places that Greenfield and are able to, you know, draw out domain services and have them all separate and have different backends for everything, they seem to do pretty well. Um, and some, you know, some people that break into microservices seem to do pretty well too, but it's, it's, it's just, it's not easy. And I think that's, that's one thing that everybody needs to understand is, you know, when you hear about it at a conference, you're hearing, you're hearing the greatest hits album. You're not hearing all the stuff that didn't make the cut, didn't make the edits, all the takes that got thrown on the floor. And that, you know, it, it comes off thinking, oh, this will be easy to do. And it's just not. And I, I think the other side of that is from an operations perspective, microservices, even when done perfectly, are way harder than keeping up a smaller number of applications with known behavior patterns. And, and, you know, I, I usually say, Hey, what's, what's more difficult keeping one thing online or two things online. Okay. What's more difficult one thing online or 15 things online. You know, you can just kind of ask those questions over and over again. And, you know, you may save a bunch of time on the developer side, but if all of that is lost in operational expertise uh, or, you know, you need to hire, people that have more operational expertise or your developers have to gain expertise in a way that they didn't have to before um, that cost is being absorbed somewhere. And, you know, I'm a big fan of people that write code should be on call for that code that's running. Um, you know, I think most of us are at this point because when it goes wrong, you want them to feel the pain, which is great. But if all they're doing is feeling pain, it means they're not really moving forward on their, you know, their key objectives uh, to get things out out for the company because they're sitting there figuring out the operational characteristics of these four different microservices that used to only be one thing. And so you're saying, hey, the problem here really is that we're we're a lot of times we just do microservices for the sake of doing microservices, and we're not thinking uh, really about you know going towards that domain-driven design. We don't ever get there because we're just splitting things off, and there's all these little teams moving around, but it's a Brownian motion kind of a thing, like a gas, where we're not really set up, especially operation, to be able to keep 15 or 100 things moving concurrently and highly available. Right. I, that's that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, and, and I think I think there's some hybrids in there where you know it might be, hey, let's split out certain services that make a lot of sense, and you know maybe they're bottleneck, maybe they're falling over, they're performance critical. Split those off, and maybe not try and split everything in the domain. Um, you know, and some places do that and they do it well, but I, I just I see a lot of people jumping on microservices because you're supposed to, and mm -hmm. you know, no one knows your business the way you do. You might not be supposed to. 
So um, yeah. don't don't necessarily jump on the hype train just for fun. Um, I, I do feel like like the ideal team size is that six to twelve. I do feel like it works best if developers are handling some some amount of production support, and I do feel like the less obstacles we put between that team and deploying to production frequently and often, those are all good things, and they're proven. Oh yeah, no, I think I think those are great things. I'm I'm a big fan of people, you know, doing continuous deployment, continuous delivery, testing very often. Um, and, and knowing that, you know, that can you deploy quickly with confidence? I mean, that, that's ultimately, that, that's the end goal from a developer point of view, right? I can make a change. I know if it's right or not, and I can get it out there to the, for the world to use and consume as fast as possible. That's what they want. And I'm happy to help teams deliver that and build toward delivering that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do that on, on 150 services. It could be that you do this on your two applications that are really important to you. I'm, I'm totally okay if that's the model you want to run to. Yeah, I, I think it's just, are we going into this with our eyes open? Um, you know, do we, are we sure that we have commitment from leadership to do this? Are, are we willing to invest into the framework, into governance, so that we don't have a thousand badly behaving, you know, little service-based entities out there? What about our, our automation and testing? You know, can we roll back easily? All those questions have to be answered. So yes, microservices are simpler pieces, but... Um, it moves that complexity upward in a governance. And if a lot of companies simply put operationally and especially monitoring wise, they're they're just not up to being able to keep that number of moving parts um, in motion and highly available. It's really challenging. Yeah, I, I mean, I would also say I would, I would basically say it's it's they haven't invested in that as the operational paradigm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a shift and and you've got to know that X amount of your dollars or time or educational investments or people are going to be there doing traceability through the system or doing, you know, monitoring or observability or whatever it is that maybe you weren't spending that much effort on it before. And so your operational burden has shifted. It's changed. And are you are you retooling the ops people or the people that work in more of an operational capacity just as much as you're retooling your developers as they split from, um, you know, well-behaved monoliths into microservices that scale? That's that's a good question. Mm. The, other, I, the other question I usually ask is, do you actually have a scale problem? A lot of people don't. We're trying to solve our own problem. It's not really scale yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a lot of people, you know, my, starting out with, there's, there's a certain amount of microservice envy going on, and I have had people come to me and say, well, I've got, you know, shame-faced. I've got this great application. It's doing very well. The company's growing, but it is a monolith. There's, you know, monolith shame sort of a thing um and maybe maybe scale at, the, at is not the pain point and, and there's been people have said starting actually with a monolith is not an anti-pattern at all because it allows you to understand where your domain boundaries should be um which you you're not going to know um starting from scratch yeah i mean is you it, might have so, you might have some ideas but i i agree you're not going to know and I, I definitely don't have any problems with a monolith that's 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 done well i mean we've all worked with a spaghetti code mess and yes you know, it grew organically and it did great things for years and years and it made probably a lot of money and that's why it's still there and why it looks like a pile of spaghetti. Like, you know, may, may your code live to be 15 years old because if it does, it means it was working for a very long time. <laughs> and, right. and, you know, I, th- I don't think we give enough credit to those types of code bases that are actually the ones that, you know, they're ugly, they're, they're difficult to work on, but they've made all the money for the company 
Whereas you have this new platform, you know, it's running on Kubernetes or whatever, but right now you have three web servers on it and that's the entire thing. And it costs you more than the monolith to maintain. Mm. Like, and that's a really common pattern right now. And I, I think it's getting improving. I think it's getting better, but it's certainly not rare. And when you and I talked to you, you mentioned that, uh, I love that saying, um, consistency is more important than perfection. And you said, I'd rather have the wrong thing done a hundred times exactly the same way than the right thing done once. And then who knows about the other 99 configurations. I, I love that. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely like just puppet philosophy, you know, burned into me when I was an operations person early on in my career. And and before I was even using puppet, it was just tooling, you know, do I know the state of how things are? Because if, if they're all aired in the same way, it's, it's the same correction action to get it to the state that I want them to be in. If they're in, you know, just who knows what a random 100 different configurations, like getting them corrected all the way through, that's that's a large effort. It's it's not a here's a playbook go run it again and again, you know, to to an operations team. It's all right. It's re this requires thought and it requires process and it requires introspection on a system and it's just so much harder to work with. And you know, I I think about that a lot still. I mean, today I still think the the primary value of automation of any kind is not speed. It is consistent, and I, I just think that's that's often overlooked. But yeah, I love that the primary value of automation of any kind is not is is not uh, speed, and we oftentimes think about that a thousand releases a day. It's simply consistency. That's great. Right. The reason you can do a thousand releases a day is because they all work. Um, yeah, I also think if you're doing a thousand releases a day, you have you have some weird things going on somewhere. But <laughs> so, and you mentioned in our interview that get, kind of getting back to to testing, and one one of the drives is automated testing, especially you know unit tests, just like almost 100% coverage in the DevOps community. But you said, listen, I'm one of, I guess I'm one of the few out there, but I'm not crazy about unit tests. I was trying to recall this conversation because when you know you sent over some notes, and I was like, why did I say what? that exactly? Because there's two different reasons that I would have said it, and one of them is. Unit test test behavior that a developer thinks is going on, and a lot of times that's not what the user thinks is going on. And so I do like system level or acceptance tests. Like if you're only going to do one, I'd much rather see you actually test user workflows than a unit test internally. But I don't think that was what I was talking about. I think what I was talking about was more for infrastructure as code, things like Puppet. Uh, a lot of people write unit tests for that. And for me, I find that to be basically I've duplicated the thing I just wrote. So I have a file that says I want these three packages installed, and then I have a test file that says, hey, are those three packages installed? Or does the catalog for Puppet say that those three packages should be installed? To me, that's basically duplicate work in two languages, whereas in the end, what I really want to do is run the infrastructure as code and then validate that the system is in the state that I want it in when I'm done. And I would much rather do that than unit test that the class that says you know, I'm configuring uh, Docker Community Edition has these users and these packages installed and all that. I'm like, in the end, I basically just want to know, like, can I run Docker and have it start up or stop or do whatever the things it's supposed to do? Because those are those are good questions, and I'd rather have that as the as the the litmus test than you know, well, all my unit tests pass, but it turns out, you know, when I when I go to run Docker on that node, um, it was missing the user or whatever, because I didn't write the, I didn't write the thing correctly. I, there's just a lot of, let's say, you can adopt a lot of practices from development inside of the operational domain, which I think is great. But I also think there's a pragmatism there that I, I would rather talk about the, the real system than the, you know, than mocking and stubbing. And I think that's kind of where a lot of that stuff runs into is 
you end up kind of mocking and stubbing APIs and build outs. And so that, that was where I think I was going with that unit test conversation, but I am not 100% sure. So. No, I get it. It was a year ago. Um, right. It, 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 when you and I were talking about it, it's, you know, I was just thinking about my experience at Nike where uh, we, we really boasted or tried to get our, our percent coverage up to as high as we could, 90% plus with unit test but you said listen that's that's great but you know like a, a puppet at the time it says we had 16,000 unit tests running but hey the build is still failing in production it's great to use it as a litmus test but with our engineers i you said i i stress with them spend time at the system and integration level what's our actual final end state is it is it stable you know are right. we really checking that so even though we're shifting left it doesn't mean we drop those higher level functional tests off the end of a building Right. And I think, you know, at this point, a lot of people are starting to talk about testing in production. And, you know, some of the conversation I've heard is, you know, you want to shift your testing right. And I just think, wow, that is the wrong language. It's expand your testing right. It's not shift. Like, no, no, the testing you're doing today, whether it's unit or system or acceptance or, you know, integration or whatever, shouldn't be done just because you can test in production. You should still do all those things so that the things that go into production for testing or for rollouts or deployment safety techniques are the most vetted and the most likely to be successful um, because it, it's still very expensive to test once you've deployed. Now it's getting cheaper and it's getting more understood and, and it's becoming more of a reality because we have all these complex systems. But I don't think it's a rather than test earlier, test later. I think it's test earlier. And and, and how does that work for a software as a service um, platform like what you've got going with circle ci i mean for for us you know well a lot of it's deployment safety right so we we deploy something and we feature flag it so that the circle ci org can see the new thing okay does ever does that work for everybody are we still able to run deployments through are we still able to run tests through if the answer is yes are we satisfied with how it works you know kind of all that okay acceptance criteria is all good can we roll out to a few more orgs um you know maybe it's five percent more maybe it's ten percent more maybe it's everybody that's using um, you know, a Linux container that's two gigabytes of RAM and, and two CPUs, like where everybody that's doing that is going to see this option or whatever. You know, you can kind of roll it out and then, uh, you know, you, you'll know more about it. And right. and, and you want to do that for a, a safety technique. Now, you know, is that testing in production? In some ways it is. You know, it's okay. Let's see what happens when we throw it out there to, you know, it was great when it was a couple orgs. Is it great when there's 10,000 orgs that are doing this? Like, you know, that's how we test things like scale or you know, is cache invalidation happening at the right time? Because those problems are a lot harder to test at a small scale because, you know, those problems are really easy to reason about as a developer when you're thinking about, okay, I have four or five concurrent connections or whatever. Now try 4,000 concurrent right. connections. Now try 40,000, you know. are cropping up. You right. can't really simulate well in QA. Right. We don't simulate them always that well. Sometimes and, you know, we get better at them uh, and, and we think about them differently. But, you know, and so that's why that's why we do you know, kind of phased rollouts of a lot of things. And um, do you do you guys, so feature flags for you is, is really helpful as far as like doing an internal release and then like this customer and this customer. Now Dynatrace has like, they have the unbreakable um, pipeline concept where like, okay, it, it's, if, if the page response suddenly drops by a factor of 10, we're going to roll back automatically, just automatically heal kind of a, a concept. Do you, do you guys use some form of that? Um, just curious about your pipeline. Yeah, um, I think it would depend on which subsystem you were in. I think some of them would do that. I don't think all of them. Um, and I, I honestly don't know. Like, I'm not the one that's pushing the deploy button most of the time throughout the day. I, I can think of a couple of them that would definitely halt like the rollout if things were going terribly, but most of the time we actually manually step up where it's going. And so, 
um, you know, it's not like we really say, hey, the goal is 100%, but roll out in this pattern. It's like, hey, we're going to roll out to this select small set. Now we're going to roll out to this larger set. Um, and so those are distinct actions for most of our things, I believe. And I might, I might not even be correct on that. Again, I'm not the one pushing code most of the time. Um, people are pretty happy about that generally. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. I, I'm curious. I, I know we're almost out of time. You were there at the very first DevOps days in the United States back in 2009. I think it was uh, 2010, but yes. 2010? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was talking with a few of my buddies and, and um, one, of them, one of them happened to be a puppet and he was like, you should come out for this. And I said, okay, you know, I submitted a talk and my whole thing was, I want, I think that this DevOps thing is bigger than web operations. And um, I was working at a, you know, at Caterpillar at the time, a fortune 100 company, big IT. And there were a lot of things that did right, but there were a lot of things that I thought could have been better. And we were trying to apply some of those practices. And honestly, the infrastructure teams I was working with had improved greatly because of doing things that, as I was reading about, you know, they called it DevOps. And as we were doing more and more of that, it made more and more sense. And so uh, I, I got to speak uh, about on a panel, um, you know, about DevOps outside the web operations domain, because at the time there was a book on web ops and there was velocity and it was Flickr with the 10 deploys a day and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is all great, but there wasn't a lot of, well, what if you're, you know, running back office applications or internal work group things, or, you know, you're doing SAP or Oracle or, you know, whatever it wasn't, it wasn't all lamb stacks and, and things like that. So um, it was, it was really interesting. I got to meet some great people and, and, you know, honestly, that was kind of a kickstart for my career. So. Yeah, it's it's this is very early on. I mean, um, shoot, a year or two into that word even existing, uh, I'm really curious about how you were able to find what DevOps was as a concept. And it sounds to me like it was just you, you looked over what the infrastructure team at Caterpillar was doing, and it was like, wow, this is pretty cool. It's actually helping. Um, I mean, a lot of it was I was trying to drive that change, um, but a lot of people that were at that team had left, uh, you know, before I got there, but they, they were pretty advanced. And, and, you know, I ended up meeting a lot of them when I lived in Nashville. And, you know, I got to sit with a bunch of these just spectacular infrastructure engineers talking about the way they'd solve problems. And, you know, from a technology standpoint, they were second to none. And I mean, many of them are leaders in, in tech companies that are very well known at this point, or they, you know, are the head of security operations or, you know, whatever it is at, at different places. One of them also happened to be the founder of Puppet. And, you know, mm -hmm. we talk about all of these technologies and choices and what makes you go forward. And I think the thing that we didn't talk about a lot was the human aspect of it. And so, you know, it was kind of I got this huge heavy dose of technology and how to solve problems. And the thing that I don't think I realized that early was trying to solve the human problems. And I had a, you know, I had a, a great group of people that I worked with at Caterpillar who helped me see that as the problem. Because it turns out being the best at technology, but being somebody that no one wants to work with, you, you still don't get a lot done. And, and so I kind of had to figure out the human element to that. And part of that was, you know, a lot of guess and check and a lot of the wrong answers coming first and then getting a, you know, a, a coaching opportunity was given to me uh, so I could learn how to do something differently and better. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what gets you where you are. And so I, I was able to adjust to some of that feedback and, you know, I'm still not perfect at all those things, but I think, I think I'm significantly, uh, I, I think about the human element of, of changes and rollout and, and the way we operate vastly more than I than I once did. I, there's a friend of mine, uh, John Weirs, he works over at Micron uh, there in Boise. And he said to me once, he says, I try to sit down with these engineering teams and understand their operating context and understand the problems they're trying to solve. And I really spend time with them before I propose anything. I'm spending time with them talking about their constraints and goals 
And that's when I can actually be in a position where instead of trying to say, we're going to do DevOps, I'm saying, what can we do about this particular bottleneck? And he says that first couple of weeks or so of getting to know them is absolutely vital. Otherwise, I'm going to be talking to the air. I, I completely agree. Uh, one of my favorite DevOps tools that I, I used to give a talk on this, like one of my favorite DevOps tools is called Lunch. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's called Lunch. I love that. Yeah. Um, so... You, you mentioned that like DevOps over the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of, there's a lot of victories, a lot of, a lot of progress, right? But in some ways you mentioned it's become a little bit of an echo chamber. We see the same people saying the same things. You know, we're all talking the same language to each other about, about this and that and giving a, a very skewed kind of a success story. Um, but it's not really, many times we don't see it resonating wider in the enterprise. Like we, that whole problem that Jez Humble talked about in Lean Enterprise, it's still there. Like most of these enterprises are really not pivoting or changing in a meaning. Do you still kind of agree with that? I think so. Um, I mean, I, so I was at DevOps Day Chicago, you know, a couple weeks ago. Um, and it was really fun to catch up with people. I know a lot of people in that community and it was very fun. The thing that I, I did find interesting was there were a lot of people that were first timers there. And so, nice. you know, you're still reaching people that haven't been to a DevOps days or a DevOps event before at a lot of these conferences, I think the speakers are very similar at, at a lot of them. Uh, you know, and I, I'll, I'll count myself among them at times. Uh, you know, I, I've definitely done DevOps days tours. Um, but, and I do think there's a little bit of an echo chamber, but I think the other time, if you can get new people into that and get new ones to contribute or offer differences or, you know, kind of just new information, it, it, it does help. And so, you know, sometimes I'm more cynical about it than others, but, you know, watching a bunch of people that are working in a, you know, a non-tech company talk about the way they're trying to solve some of their technology problems and their cultural problems, I still find that fascinating. I, I just don't know that a DevOps days with 600 people is always the best venue for that. You know, I, I usually get more out of the open spaces than I do out of the main stage talks at this point because I can have a, a more small focused conversation with somebody to understand their context and their problem sets. But, um, you know, you can get value at so many different levels of those conferences. I Also, I would bet that most people that go to those as attendees, at least, haven't been to the number of those that I have. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why I think I hear the same thing a lot. It's because I have. Mm -hmm. and so um, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It's just, uh, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot to say and you want to take it in. But I, what I love hearing is just, you know, somebody from, you know, an enterprise retailer kind of saying, hey, how do you validate changes on your pipeline? Like, do you do CI for your CI? And it's like, wow, that's an interesting question. Let's sit down and talk about this in a group of six to 10 people for an hour, because that's a really fun problem. And it's a little different than the, you know, the basic 101 of here's DevOps or here's how we work together or, you know, putting up a bunch of memes on a slide. I'm mm -hmm. really tired of memes on slides. I will say I am that. Too. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I like that specific question about, hey, if, you know, it's all about the delivery pipeline. How do you validate if we're, the changes we're making, the tweaks are, are having a measurable impact or not? Right. And I think yeah, it's a really That's hard a problem. Question. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, are you going to come up with one answer out of that? No, but you're going to have a great discussion. You're going to feel like you learned more and you're going to, you know, where could I go read more about this problem set or how do I think about this problem differently from now on? And to me, that's a really valuable experience at a conference. I'm curious though. I mean, uh, you're obviously, you're an early adopter. You're, 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 
you're always kind of challenging and growing. How do you do this? How do you how do you stay a lifelong learner? How do you kind of stay in that mode where um, you're always challenging yourself to try new things? Is there is it through podcasts, um, reading books at home over the weekend? What do you do, Michael, to kind of stay fresh? Let's see. early in my career, I would try and read one technical book, and um, I don't recommend that just because one, a lot of technical books are very dry, and um, and also like if you read you know if you read how to program in language foo and you haven't touched it in six months, it turns out that in six months you don't know very much about language foo anymore. So um, I don't necessarily recommend that, but I did do that for, it was a couple of years where I probably read a technical book a week or at least three a month, you know, and, um, and I really enjoyed it. I learned a ton of kind of different things, but I kind of burnt down on that after a while. And it was probably, you know, my rate slowed for a while after that, where it was more maybe a book a month. And then I stopped reading technical books more or less altogether for a period of maybe a year or two. And, um, I, you know, now I read more books on management and leadership and thinking about problems. Usually they, if they can tie it back to a technical domain, I, I get more out of it, but sometimes I'll read things that are very, um, you know, very orthogonal to technology and still pull big lessons from them. Um, I listen to, let's see, I'm really into economics. And so I like to read some blogs on economics, but behavioral economics specifically. So I like, I am a you know, like a Freakonomics podcast junkie. Um, I love thinking about the ways that they talk about incentives and motivations and why people do the things they do. And you know, a lot of times I can relate whatever they're talking about back to stories that I have from work. And it doesn't seem like it's that clear of a, a line, but you know, you know, they'll talk about you know deliberate practice. And if you spend ten thousand hours on something, can you be an expert in all this? And like you know, I go back and I think about that from a you know, an IT leadership perspective or an engineering leadership or like, you know, a, a, an operations person or whatever. And, you know, there's a lot you can glean from from listening to the discussion there with, you know, these professors um, on Freakonomics. And so I, I like to do that. Uh, I do listen to a ton of different podcasts, but uh, mostly because just I, I like that. That's how I like to consume a lot of information these days is audibly versus uh, reading. Uh, but, I, you know, I just, I just always have such a strive to learn that that's never been the problem. I think what I've, what I identified was I'm the least happy when I'm not. And so, um, you know, if I'm not having a great time at work or whatever, it probably means that I'm doing something that I'm very familiar with and I'm just not growing in that space anymore. And so, uh, new opportunities and and able to learn new things and try new things is really what drives me. And I found that's true for most of the people I've worked with as well. If you can give them something new to learn, they're very happy. Um, I try not to hire people to do the exact job they've already done because they will be bored. Yeah, that one year of experience, twenty times, kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. so easy to get stuck in a rut, and that is when we get unhappy. Most, most of your good employees are going to be like that, where they're like, "Look, I've been doing this; it's the exact same work. There's no way of optimizing it. I'm kind of checking out." Yep. You know? Yep. We have to always kind of find new, new challenges. Um, any more? Any, any books uh, in particular, or uh, besides? I, by the way, I love podcasts and I love Audible. Um, my retention rate is quite high with that, so it's a great way of using that car time. Any, any uh, books on management and leadership that you could recommend to our listeners? Let's see. Uh, I mean, the Will, Will Larson's An Elegant Puzzle is definitely the one that stuck with, with me most recently. Um, and I ended up buying that for several managers that are in my org. Um, actually, I think all of them. And, you know, making sure that people read it. And again, I don't agree with everything on it. I don't think it's like mm-hmm. an A+, plus, like everything's perfect in it. I just think it was such a well-laid-out framework that even if you didn't agree with it, you could learn something from it. Um, right. And that one was my favorite recently. I really like the book uh, Ship It. Um, it's it's from Pragmatic Press. And you don't think 
like it doesn't sound like a leadership book, but there's a lot of how you frame delivery and how you get teams to to rally and work together in there. And it's an older, I mean, it's probably 15 years old at this point. Um, and I, I, I use that a lot. And I used most of the practices from that book on an operations team when I was first joining, you know, when I was first joining the ranks of leadership and it worked super well. Um, and so I still recommend that one fairly often for people. Um, I think what else I've really, really enjoyed recently um, I don't know that I have anything else off the top of my head. Well, this is this has been. A, is there any closing thoughts you have? I guess as we, we we've covered a ton of ground, but I always I always love talking to you because I get um, not just uh, your 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 standard cookie cutter um, DevOps responses. I get a lot of thought behind it. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think to me that you know the thing that I would encourage you is is work with the people that you have around you and and try and understand their perspective. Um, I, I don't consider myself a naturally super empathetic person, but I do try and put myself in their shoes when I can to understand what their needs are, why they have the complaint they have, why they're blocked on whatever, and how I can help them move forward. And and some days it works really well, and some days I'm way less good at it. Um, and I think we all need to be accepting of that too. Like, you know, we're all going to have bad days. We're all going to have off days. Um, we're all going to make mistakes no matter what level we are at the job, you know, and, and everybody needs to be accepting of that. We're all humans here. Yeah. But can we all can we all be humans to work together? I think that's really the goal. I think John Willis put it. He says DevOps and the end DevOps is, is empathy. It's understanding the other person and their situation. Um, and so I, I like that about uh, Kaizen, continual improvement. And sometimes the best that we give is on some days, we're not always going to be able to give 110%. Sometimes our best is 20%. And to accept that. You know, to work within that limitation and, and not exhaust ourselves and people around us with that kind of with negative energy. It's it's I think that's important. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think it's humans are complicated. They go back and forth as to yes. what they're what things they're optimizing for and, and you know, let's let's all be respectful of what else is going on in the world besides uh, their job day to day as well. So you're more than your job. Yes. So. I love that. Okay. Well Michael, thank you so much. We I really appreciate your time today. All right. Well thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.